Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 339, Knute the Conqueror. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Charlotte, Solomon, and Malcolm for signing up already. It's been a strange few years, and the fall of the House of Wessex and the rise of Canute looks very much like a simple story of conquest. After all, it's right there in the title. Virtually every book about this era has a chapter called The Conquest of England. And for good reason. Canute was a conqueror. And conquest, at least in the popular imagination, is a simple story of military domination. It's a story of soldiers and sieges, where the biggest army and the best tactics win the day. But here's the thing, if that's the story you're expecting, then it must seem like the wrong guy won here. I mean, if we're talking about military matters, King Edmund was your guy. He wasn't just the rightful heir, he was a warrior king. Edmund had ruled as one of the kings of old. He was acting in a way that fit in well with the days of Alfred, and even earlier. He was a gifted tactician who led from the front. He stood with his men against incredible odds, and yet he also showed mercy and forgiveness to his enemies, and he placed the needs of the crown before his own. So if you're looking for honorable feats of arms and heroic soldiering led by a gifted and charismatic battlefield leader, well, you're on Team Edmund. And yet he lost half the kingdom. And then he lost all of it. So why would someone who's the better tactician with the love of the people, and with home field advantage, lose. Edmund had everything he needed to regain the Kingdom of England from a foreign usurper. And yet he wasn't able to overcome Canute. Why? Well, I think it's because Canute wasn't playing the same game that Edmund was. And I believe that the key to that game is found in Edric Strayona. And not just because he had a direct hand in this, which he did, but also because Edric provides a window into the main weakness of Edmund Ironside. You see, Edmund knew who Edric Strayona was, and he knew what he was. He had to have. They were rivals, after all. And more than that, Edmund knew the noble culture of England that had created Edric, because he'd grown up in it. And yet we saw Edmund welcome Edric back into court. And not only that, he gave him incredible power within his own army. And you must have been wondering why he did that. Well, remember that when Edmund first came into our attention, he was extorting monks for wealth. But by the time that he had assumed the role of king, Ironsides had become something like a mix between King Arthur and Robin Hood. And that's quite the character arc, and we have no explanation for it. But it's possible that Edmund was trying to fix what was broken in England, and he was trying to do it by becoming an honorable king. By leading by example, he might have been trying to turn the nobility towards virtue. Because during this period, it was believed that the character of the kingdom flowed from the virtues of the king. So he might have been trying to change things. And that's why we suddenly have this Edmund Ironside who looks a lot like King Arthur. And that brings us back to Edric. You see, under all that framework and the desire to get back to the old days... 
Well, suddenly oaths and promises become incredibly important. So when Edric came back and pledged his loyalty, well, refusing it might have been a culturally sticky situation for Edmund. He might have had to accept Edric's oaths. And who knows? He might have even assumed that Edric would be true to his word now that a new day had dawned for England. But as we all know, there was one tiny problem with that plan. The character of a kingdom doesn't, in fact, flow from the virtues of a king. Because a king isn't magic. He could set policy, sure. But whether or not he ate fish on Friday wasn't going to have some sort of mystical impact on the behavior of Edric. This was a cultural problem, and the king was just one guy in the middle of it. And since the culture of corruption had permeated the halls of power, well, becoming the nicest and most stand-up guy in the room wasn't going to be enough to change what had been growing. Do you remember Gresham's Law? You can't eliminate corruption by adding a few new figures into the corrupted system. You have to address the root problem. So even though Edmund was a gifted tactician and was winning victories in the field, he was continually finding himself hamstrung by the machinations of his own allies. Ultimately, what happened here is Edmund was fighting on the wrong battlefield. By failing to contend with the culture that had developed in England, he had abandoned the field without even knowing it. But Canute had caught on to the new game. And rather than rejecting it and pretending it wasn't there, instead, Canute embraced the political mosh pit of the noble classes. And he used the short-sighted ambitions of the English nobles against them. The Danish army very easily could have been wiped out by the English, had the English actually worked together. Numerically, the Ferd of England could have overwhelmed Canute's army, if they all had mustered and organized. But they didn't. Their rivalries ran too deep, and Canute exploited that situation so successfully that rather than being overwhelmed in the field, he actually managed to bolster his numbers by packing his army with the firds of the malcontent and grasping English nobility. And so here, we have a conqueror who took over a kingdom, not through overwhelming military might, but through his ability to read the political landscape and use it against his opponent. And that's why I don't think that the rise of Canute was a feat of military power. I think it was a feat of politics and cunning. And now, Canute had won. And what he had won was the center position on a spider's web of deadly political intrigue. The Kingdom of England was an enormous network of ever smaller regions, each delicately organized into an administrative system of governance that put Wessex at the center of everything. And this design made England quite effective, at least when it was governed well. But it was also a political nightmare for anyone not ready for the challenge, because by having so many lesser nobles, all in a cascading pyramid scheme of power, factions could quickly organize against the king and overpower him if they weren't handled carefully. And as such, one of the chief roles of being the king was to sit at the center of this web and regularly meet with your nobles, balancing their needs and desires with your needs and desires, and generally being seen as ruling, and ruling well. And you had to do all of that while also being able to identify who was a threat and who was an actual ally. It was a nightmare. And sure, Canute was a young man with powerful allies, and he was someone who had shown a certain aptitude for wielding those forces against the English. But it was one thing to use those incentives to wreak havoc, and it was something else entirely to try and actually control them and use them to govern. 
one false move, and those powerful allies that helped him acquire the throne could take him right off it. Compounding this problem was the fact that now that the war was over, there were two large armies still residing in England. There was Canute's army, and there was the remnants of Edmund's army. And Canute had a lot to prove to both. The English were defeated and probably war-weary from the literal decades of conflict and instability. You might have noticed that listening to the reign of King Athelred felt a lot like a really depressing version of Groundhog Day. And even I got tired of repeating the same mistakes and fumbled battles. But imagine what it was like for the people who were actually living through the horrors of that era. It must have been excruciating. So it's no surprise that they were now willing to tolerate a Dane on the throne, so long as it brought them a little peace and stability. But Canute had to be really careful given the political and cultural influence at play here. You see, the English weren't rebelling now, sure, but they still outnumbered the Danes significantly, and many of the English who had fought against him were still out there. Some of them were still in his court. And if Canute treated them poorly, they might pick up their arms again. So he needed to be just, calming, and the very model of a good king. But there was a problem with that. Canute had come here with an army. An army that expected to get paid. Furthermore, those English nobles who had propelled his rise to the throne by switching sides, they were still there, and they too were expecting to be rewarded. No one had done any of this out of the kindness of their hearts. No one said, that Canute seems like a nice young fellow. I'll risk death and dismemberment so he could have a shiny new hat. That wasn't happening. They were here for the loot. They expected wealth, they expected riches, they expected rewards, and they expected a lot of them. So Canute needed to be just and soothing to the people he just defeated, while also providing fantastic cash and prizes to the people who defeated them. And those prizes would have to be pried from the hands of the defeated. So yeah, this was going to be a problem. And then you have the issue of Canute's claim to the throne. The whole reason why Canute was here in the first place was because he had a claim through his dad, Swain Forkbeard. But Swain had only been a king of England for about 20 minutes. He was never even formally crowned. So that's not great, but it's all Canute had to work with, which left him in a really tight spot as far as medieval legitimacy goes. And it's likely in response to all these tensions that Canute called a great council at London in 1016. John of Worcester tells us that, quote, all the bishops, eldermen, and chief men of England, end quote, were assembled there. And once everyone was settled, Canute looked on the noble crowd, and he asked them to recall the peace treaty that they had witnessed between himself and King Edmund Ironside. And then he asked somebody to remind him what it was that Edmund had declared when they were talking about succession. And Canute had obviously not forgotten this. I mean, he was there, and this was a really big deal. So I suspect that Canute, like any good trial lawyer, already knew exactly how the chosen nobles would answer his question before he asked it. And John of Worcester speaks of Canute's shrewdness during this council. And it's easy to guess that there have been weeks of whipping the vote long before this great council was called. So he turned to the chosen nobles and awaited their answer. Now, unfortunately, we're not told which nobles he called upon, but I would be shocked if one of them was an Edric Strayona. I suspect that Edric and his allies were precisely the people that Canute wanted on the record, answering the question of, what did Edmund want? 
Because John tells us that those nobles said that Edmund declared that the throne should go to Canute on the event of his death. And more than that, that Canute would be the guardian of Edmund's sons. Which, you know, makes perfect sense. I mean, you know how it is. The guy who overthrew your father, hunted you through the countryside, and turned your nobility against you is obviously the natural heir to your throne and exactly the guy you want raising your sons should anything happen. Uncle Conqueror. It's a story as old as time. But as convincing as that story is, you couldn't get anything past John of Worcester. And he didn't believe a word of this, saying, quote, But as God knows, they bore false witness and foully lied, thinking that he would be more favorable to them and reward them handsomely for their falsehood, end quote. So John was convinced that this was all lies and damn lies. But here's the funny thing. It wasn't exactly unheard of for rulers to strike deals that said whoever died first would inherit the other's crown. In fact, doing that was one way to avoid a protracted war over who should hold the united title. It was sort of like a medieval tontine. In fact, that's exactly what it was. So it's possible that these two men did decide upon having a tontine, quite possibly at that meeting on the island that Canute was referencing. And that Canute was just making the nobles who were present be the ones to say it out loud. That is possible. But when you get to the part where Canute suddenly becomes the new dad to Edmund's sons, that's a bit harder to swallow. First of all, because unlike the agreement of the thrones, there's no medieval precedent for handing over your own children to the guy who's been trying to kill you and take your kingdom. Moreover, there's no record indicating that Edmund's wife, Eldgith, had died. So she might have still been out there, and she was influential in the five boroughs. So why wouldn't the boys stay with her? And even if she had died, Edmund would have had plenty of connections and influence, and he could have appointed guardians for his son in the very likely event of his death. And yet, we're supposed to believe that he decided to give them to Canute? The one man who had the strongest incentive to kill them, given that they would be permanent rivals for the throne. So on that issue, I have to side with John. This must have been a bald-faced lie. And frankly, the whole episode reeks of Canute just once again using cunning to secure his position and eliminate his rivals. And given that, you might be wondering why the English nobility were going along with it. Well, John tells us that, quote, After these inquiries, King Canute used every effort to induce the great men of the realm, already mentioned, to swear allegiance to him, end quote. Which is a little vague. But it sounds like he was using plenty of carrots and sticks. And we might find one of those carrots in a section of Canute's 1018 law code. Now, this section is written very differently than the laws that come before and after it. The syntax and language are distinctly different. And what's more, it's written using the first person. And that's led historians like Pauline Stafford to conclude that it was actually an earlier code that was written by a different author. Because the laws that surround it are assumed to be the work of Archbishop Wolfstan of York who we have already met before in this show. But this one little section seems to be written by a new person. And when analyzing the material of the strange code, some historians have come to the conclusion that this section was drafted and put into effect immediately upon Canute coming to power. Meaning, it was possibly put into effect at this exact council. Perhaps even by Canute himself. And it starts by saying, quote, Now this mitigation by which I wish to protect all the people from what they were hitherto oppressed, end quote. 
And that's some flowery language. But what he's saying, but what it is, is a pretty clear reference to the corruption under Athelred and his councils and a statement that he intends to protect the people from that behavior in the future. And then the code starts to get pretty specific on what it's going to fix. And it goes on to condemn the abuses of lordship, even abuses that are carried out by the king. It also provides protection for holdings in the event that someone should try to seize them, which we know happened quite a bit during Athelred's reign. It even speaks about the treatment of widows, which might sound random, but thanks to the years of war and raiding, there were widows all throughout the kingdom, and one way to gain their wealth was to forcibly marry them, which is also something we saw during the reign of Athelred. So this code was deliberately setting legal constraints against the behaviors that characterized the brutal years under Athelred Unred. And it was stating clearly that everyone, from the king to the commoner, would be bound by these laws, and thus protected by the law. In this little bit of legislation, Canute was signaling that he would be a just and fair king, not just a conqueror. And in doing so, he was promising to return England to the stability and peace that it had known in generations past. This code gives a sense of the balance that Canute was trying to strike with his new subjects and the olive branch that he was extending to the remaining nobility. And it was very likely promulgated right here, as he worked to soothe the concerns of the southern nobles who now wondered how this new regime would treat them, and whose support he desperately needed in order for him to hold the throne. And apparently, Canute's efforts worked, because John tells us that Canute, quote, then concluded a treaty with the nobles and the whole people, and they with him, and they confirmed a firm friendship between them with oaths, and laid aside and set at rest all their own animosities, end quote. And with that, it was done. But curiously, we aren't told whether or not Canute was formally crowned. There's no record of coronation. But given Canute's desire to shore up his position, I have to imagine that he wanted one, assuming, of course, that he was aware of the custom, which it is possible that at this early stage, he didn't know about that English ritual. But coronation or not, Canute was now king of England. And it was right at around this point that he issued a new coin. This coin featured himself, and he was wearing a crown. It was also minted in a style that seems to have been explicitly in the style of King Edgar the Peaceable, and distinctly different from the style of Athelred Unred's coins. Now, as you recall, coins were more than just currency. They were a form of royal propaganda. They were a way for the king to demonstrate his power and presence, even to those who would never see him in person. This was the most common way for the average Englishman to have contact with the king. And often, when a new coin was issued, the old coinage would be recalled. So this isn't just an economic move. This is a political move. And by erasing the most common way that the public would have been familiar with Athelred, and by replacing that with his own image, Canute was functionally erasing his predecessor. And he actually took that a step further by essentially going back in time prior to Athelred to a period that was fondly remembered as an era of prosperity and peace, to the days of King Edgar the Peaceable, and then using the design of that coin to directly link his reign to then. It was smart. But the South, especially the Southwest, had been a hotbed of resistance against Canute. And a few new laws, a new coin, and that super-secret swear that there had been a tontine 
wasn't necessarily going to be enough to placate the rebels that were likely in his midst. The fact was that the South could raise an army and go on the attack in almost no time at all. And Canute had learned that the hard way. Several times, in fact. So to counter this, he redirected his focus and his physical presence to the South, likely in order to keep an eye on things. You can also see Canute's anxiety in the landscape itself. It's at around this point that we see archaeological evidence of important southern burrs having their ditches filled in, thus destroying their defensive capabilities. Cricklade, Lidford, South Canterbury, and Wareham were among the burrs that were destroyed. So it's entirely plausible that soon after taking power, Canute deliberately set about limiting the defensive capabilities of the South in order to prevent those sites from being used by any rivals in its midst from mounting a rebellion. So we have Canute offering the English power structure an olive branch, but also letting the nobility know that he would beat them with it if he had to. It was a complicated situation, but Canute had to pull it off, especially since there was another claimant to the throne. There were three, in fact, especially since there was another claimant to the throne in England. There were three, in fact. There was King Edmund Ironside's two sons, Edward and Edmund Atheling, and there was Edmund's younger brother, Edwig. And to make matters worse, the English were starting to call Edwig the King of the Churls, or in modern English, the King of the Freemen. Yikes. And John of Worcester tells us that in this moment, he turned to an old advisor for help. He turned to Edric Strayona. And he asked him how he should deal with this King of the Churls and the two sons of King Edmund Ironside. And Edric proposed an incredibly Edric solution. Kill them. Which, let's be honest, is a pretty obvious answer to the question, and it was one that Canute almost certainly knew already. But, remember, we just saw Canute asking a question that he already knew the answer to when he was handling an earlier succession problem. For Canute, saying, who, me? I was just asking questions, seems to have been actually one of his tactics. And by having the idea come from the mouth of Edric Strayona, Canute can place the blame for what came next on the shoulders of an English noble. So Canute wasn't ruthless. He was simply taking the advice of this English nobleman. Smart. And upon hearing Edric's obvious solution to his problem, Canute rejected it. Dramatically. He declared that he refused to have innocent blood on his hands, and he would instead adopt a more merciful approach. He wouldn't kill Edwick. He would merely declare him an outlaw. Nor would he execute King Edmund's two young sons, who were apparently in his possession. Instead, they would simply be exiled. So now, suddenly, Canute was the man defending his rivals against the perfidious machinations of the villainous Edric Strayona. Now, of course, if you're outlawed, as Edwig was, it meant that anyone could kill you without consequence. So Edwig's life was immediately placed in danger. And according to John of Worcester... Canute immediately hired an assassin and sent him after Edwig, just to be sure. We're also told that when Canute exiled Edmund's sons, who were still little boys, he sent them to his ally, King Olaf of Sweden, along with instructions that Olaf should have them executed as soon as possible. Canute might have wanted to appear merciful, but you don't get this high up by playing nice. And while everyone was looking at Edric, they likely were missing the fact 
that Knut was still a killer. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on a bunch of social media, and you can find links to any of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.